Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Thanks so much for listening. I just want to say here at the outset that this episode with Carmen Imes is a testimony to her kindness because we recorded it back in June and then I overwrote the files and then she agreed kindly to re-record. And so that's what this interview is. We did it just recently. So uh, thanks to Carmen and thanks to our audio team for uh, producing this episode and to all of you for listening. So hope you enjoy this conversation. Hey everyone, our guest today is Dr. Carmen Imes, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Biola University. She received her PhD at Wheaton College after serving on the mission field in the Philippines. She's the author of Bearing Yahweh's Name at Sinai, uh, published by Eisenbrons, and a more popular version that many of you have heard of or read called Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. And we have an episode on that book if you go back through our episodes. And she's written a book called Reading the Psalms with um, Augustine and Friends. And she creates Torah Tuesday videos on YouTube, so you can go check those out. And the book for discussion today is Being God's Image, Why Creation Still Matters, published by IVP this year. And it was on the Evangelical Christian Publisher Sellers list, uh, uh, at the top of the list for a new publication. So that's a, a real achievement. So congrats, Carmen, and thanks for coming on OnScript. Thanks, Matt. G- great to be with you again. Yeah, is it hard to believe it was published this year, given how many like things you've done around this book? <laughs> yes, it's it's been a full year. They don't tell you when you start writing books that actually the hard work comes afterwards with all the speaking engagements and podcast interviews and inter- interacting with people about the book. So it's fun. It's a fun season. Yeah. Is that something you have to like talk with your institution about or they get or how does that how does that work on that front? Like, I'm at Biola and they seem to understand. My biggest challenge is that I have a very loud door in the hallway right outside my office. And because I'm doing a lot of podcast interviews, I'm always having to prop open the door so that it won't slam shut in the middle oh, of our got conversation. It. Yeah. Put up signs telling people not to be loud in the hallway. <laughs> so my institution's very understanding. <laughs> right. They need one of those soft close uh, things on there. Yes. Yes. All right. Maybe a donor who's listening could could uh, help fund that. Um, in what way did writing this book, um, Being God's Image, become necessary after bearing God's name? Um, you know, what what's the relationship between those two? Sure. A lot of people, right after they read Bearing God's Name, would say, oh, I've never thought about the name command that way before, but what you're saying makes so much sense, that Israel represents God among the nations, that his, they're bearing his name. That reminds me of, of what it means to be made in God's image, that humans represent God. Are, are those the same thing? Like, do you see those as connected? And I realized that I needed to make a distinction between the two, because I do think they're related. Both roles are representational, but every human being is the image of God, and only the covenant people bear God's name. So the scope of the role is not the same. And probably it would have been okay just to let that sit. It wasn't like, everyone has to know this. 
But along the way, one of my earlier podcast interviews on Bearing God's Name, uh, I was asked the question, what's an idea in scholarship that needs to die? I don't know if you asked me that, Matt. You, that's what I've heard you ask that one before. You might have asked me. So we can go back in the archives and find out if this is my answer. But just right away, th- my answer was this idea that we ask Jesus into our heart so we can go to heaven when we die. That's an idea that needs to die. It's a very truncated and anemic vision of what salvation looks like and what our eternal destiny looks like. And I realized that I wanted to make the case for Christians in a very accessible way that the Bible teaches that our bodies come with us into the new creation, that we're not just floating around on the clouds. It's not It's not just our spirits that are going to be with Jesus forever, but that there's a bodily resurrection that awaits us and that we'll have eternity to spend on a restored earth doing what Adam and Eve were meant to do from the very beginning, which is to steward creation. And so those two ideas were just kind of read, like they just asked to be paired together. It's why creation still matters. So from beginning to end of the biblical story. Right. And that subtitle is very important to what you're doing in the book. This is not just an analysis of Genesis 1, 26 to 28, although that's an important part of it. Um, so on that topic of image of God, what what did you feel as you were digging into the meaning of image of God and likeness of God? What did you feel was either not um, analyzed before by scholars or was not disseminated well at a popular level? I think this is more of a dissemination problem than it is an analysis problem. But it's not just a matter of disseminating uh, academic scholarship to people in the pews. It's also a matter of disseminating academic Old Testament scholarship to people in other academic disciplines. I think what I noticed is that we have a long history of theological reflection on the Imago Dei but that many of those reflections are not very rooted in the text. It's as though somebody said, okay, what are all the ways that humans and animals are different from one another? What makes humans better than animals? We make a list of all the things, and we could put all those in the basket marked image of God. That, as, if, as if that title, Imago Dei, is the descriptor or the title that, that encompasses anything that makes us different. And I don't think that that's what the Bible is saying. There are lots of differences between humans and animals, many ways that we are superior to animals, but that is not what the Bible is evoking when it says that we're the image of God. And so that's the piece that I think Old Testament scholarship settled actually a long time ago, but it hasn't really crossed, it hasn't had a good cross-disciplinary dissemination. Right. And and so... um... What then would you say the text of Genesis 1, 26 to 28 is saying when it says that humans are made in or, as you mentioned, as the image of God? Um, and maybe with that, like if you want to touch on image and likeness and if there's any significance to that difference, because in the likeness is also part of that. Yes, yeah, so Genesis 1, 26 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Uh, that's the NIV. The The word image in, in Hebrew, as you know, is tselem. And a tselem in Hebrew is something very concrete and three-dimensional. 
It's the word used to describe an idol in a temple most often, and sometimes used to describe a statue of a king. So it's it's really a physical statue or, or three-dimensional object that represents the existence or presence of someone else. And so that's pretty clear in Hebrew, but again, people's imaginations of what does it make what makes humans different than animals has come up with a whole list of human capacities that then people try to attach to the image of God. So, oh, it's our rationality or our relationality or our morality or our conscience or our consciousness, self-consciousness. All of these are possibilities because they're things that make humans different than animals. But the Hebrew word selim is just far more uh, restrained than that. It's far more specific to refer to a three-dimensional object. So I don't see a huge difference between image and likeness. The, the word for likeness here is demuth. I think they're functioning mainly as synonyms. Likeness might not have quite the concreteness to it, but but they work well as in parallel with each other. I don't know if you want to add add to that on anything you've seen it as far as how they relate. Well, I mean, I I mean, I've heard people talk about like likeness is just a slight. It's like adding a footnote to image and and saying just lest you think that this connotes identity. There's a distinction here between the one created. So this is not like a a multiplication of the deity, but yes. a place yes. where God is manifest in the image and as a likeness. So sure, and I think we get that in the word selim. A statue is not the thing it represents. It's it's its own entity, and yeah. So then the other grammatical piece that I think Old Testament scholarship could add, and this is not universally accepted, but I've been persuaded that. Um, to translate it in our image is actually not doing anybody a favor, and it's grammatically problematic. Um, David Kleins argued decades and decades ago that we should be translating it as, so let us make humankind as our image, and arguing that the bait preposition that's attached to the word selim is a bait essentia or a, a bait of essence that's announcing the thing it's talking about. We have another example of that in Exodus 6, verse 3, where Yahweh announces to Moses um, that to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he appeared as El Shaddai, but El Shaddai. He didn't, uh, he, he didn't reveal himself in El Shaddai. He, he revealed himself as El Shaddai. That's a, that's a reasonable way to translate it. And so there are other examples where that grammatical construction is used. The reason why I think it's important here is because so often... People talk about losing the image of God or it being damaged or destroyed. And to talk about being made in the image of God gives puts, I think, more distance between us and the image than what's warranted grammatically. And I think the theological payoff of that distance is that we are then uncertain about how much are we God's image when this passage is really saying every human being is the image of God. There's nothing that you can do to qualify yourself to be the image or to disqualify yourself. You just are by virtue of being human and having a human body. You are the image of God. Yeah, I don't, I don't have the Greek in front of me. I'm just thinking about the language of being conformed to the likeness of Christ in the New Testament, which has a sort of ongoing sense. Do you think that that's sort of imported back into discussions about image of God? Um, Probably. Where? Yeah. 
if you just had that on its own and didn't have the Old Testament, you, you might think that like your your sort of sub image bearing or a sub image being um, without, you know, until the eschaton or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Um, and, and I would explain the New Testament language of being conformed to the image of Christ as encouraging us to become what we already are, to learn to live in alignment with our true identity. And I think this is what actually happens in the fall in Genesis 3, is that humans choose to live according to a lie about who they are instead of according to the truth. So Adam and Eve step outside of their God-given identity, and they they distort that picture of who God made them to be. And all of human history is the story of humans not living in alignment with their identity. And so to be conformed to the image of Christ is our call because Christ is the image of God, because he's human, he's the image of God, and he actually lives fully consistently with that identity. And so we're invited to imitate his example so that we can experience the glory that we're that is supposed to accompany uh, our our status as God's image. So, um, you know, for listeners, they might be wondering why you're making such a point of this sort of being versus um, action. And could you just tease out some of the implications? So, for instance, let me let me just present an alternative, which is that. Um, to be made in the image of God means to rule over creation. And so my, uh, I am the image of God as I enact that rule, which, you know, in, in Genesis one twenty eight, it goes on to talk about and rule over fish of the sea, the bird, birds of the air, and the beasts and everything that creeps along the ground. Right. Yes. Both verse 26 and 28 talk about rulership. Rulership is a clear implication of the image. I think it's important we don't attach it to the image directly and say this is the content of the image because not every human is capable of ruling. Ruling is what we are meant to do, but if you're unable to rule in some, in, for some reason or, or in some sense, you don't lose your status as the image of God. So I'm, I'm trying very carefully to, to talk about the image as our human identity following the work of theologian Ryan Peterson, who also teaches here at Biola, um, and others. And and yet I'm also wanting to introduce the possibility of thinking of our vocation as something that th- flows out of that identity right. as God's image. And then just to back up a verb, <laughs> um, yeah. it says that God blessed them. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, you know, just before saying in, um, and rule... Do you connect blessing in here somehow? Um, Because I'm thinking of like, and is that a connecting point with bearing God's name? Because, you know, in the the Aaron's blessing, he blesses them and then confers the, you know, and and in so doing confers the name on them. Is there also a blessing that confers the vocation, at least, of the image? I don't know. Yeah, I would think that the name at Sinai is the signal of their vocation. They are the people who bear God's name, which is why they get the law, because the law gives them the vision for what it looks like to live that out. And so I think that I haven't thought about it in quite these terms, Matt, but I think you're right. The blessing in Genesis is what enables them to live out their vocation. Um, he because he blesses them and says, "Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over all of creation." So, 
So the, the multiplication, the subduing, the ruling, all of these things are implications of being God's image. Uh, again, you can be God's image without multiplying. Jesus is the image of God and he doesn't produce any children. Uh, and so we don't need to be married. We don't need to have offspring in order to be the image of God. But it's part of our human vocation to to fill the earth and and thereby rule. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, <laughs> um, if if the if the status is tied to the vocation too closely, then Jesus doesn't qualify, and that's a right. problem. <laughs> right, that is certainly a problem. <laughs> yeah, so you have like status, blessing, and then vocation sort of uh, connected, but but separable in important ways. Um, so. Um, how does the um, you've touched on this a little bit about the relationship between the image of God and image of Christ? Um, I just wondered if you have anything more you want to add on that, um, and in the ways that like the New Testament picks up with, picks up this language and carries it forward in particular ways. Yeah, one thing I would love to say is that Jesus is not the image of God because he's God; he's the image of God because he's human. Now, that taken out of context could make it sound like I'm saying he's not God. So let me hasten to add, I do think Jesus is God. But that's not what qualifies him to be the image of God. God is not God's image. Right. Jesus becomes the image of God when he becomes human because every human being is the image of God. And so when when the New Testament talks about him being the exact representation of God, I think what it's trying to express to us is that there is a fundamental difference between Jesus and everybody else. We're all God's image, but Jesus is actually living like that's true. He has mastered the art of living as God's image. And so we can look to him as an example. One of the things that's intrigued me about the revelation of humans as the image of God in conjunction with the revelation of the divine name in Exodus, is that that both of them are at some level given at a textual level in very like opaque ways. Like they're they're both stories that are under underdetermined. And so, do you see any importance in image of God for or any any place for mystery in thinking about? human identity and is that intentional on the part of the text yeah there's a lot of mystery and a lot of gaps in genesis 1 through 3 that leave room for speculation which is why we can just keep churning out books on genesis 1 through 3 and find new things to say um because the story is just so ripe for reflection um i think that one of the things i've realized about what it means to be God's image is that it simultaneously exalts and demotes us, that we are exalted above all the rest of the created beings, that we have this exalted status where we rule over other created beings, but we are in fact the image of God. We are not God. So there's like a cap on our exaltation where we're meant to point to someone greater than ourselves. So it, it's a really interesting thing that it does to our self-esteem or to our sense of place in the universe that like, wow, I, I am somebody, but I'm not the somebody. <laughs> I'm, I'm designed to point to the glory of God, not to absorb glory to myself. And that is really radical. We have 
We have all sorts of problems in human history with the waffling between those extremes. Um, the either the, the self debasement, abasement. What's the word? Um, yeah, debasement. Like yeah, the the sort of self hatred, even yeah. or or thinking I'm nothing, thinking I'm worthless, or treating other people like they're nothing or like they're worthless. Neither of those approaches is consistent with the Bible's teaching on human anthropology. Uh, and yet we have the opposite problem, too, where people exalt themselves and try to get all of the glory and all of the um, attention for themselves. And they do that by trampling on other people. And that's also not allowed. So, yes, we're put in charge to rule, but it's not it can never be an exploitative rule. It can never be despotic. We have to rule in such a way that we're collaborating with our co-rulers, which is every other human being. And another thing that's striking that comes out in Genesis 1 is that when God tells the first two humans to rule, he's talking to a man and a woman, and he tells them both to rule, and he never says to rule over each other. And so precisely at the place where I would expect to see a hierarchy, there just isn't one. Right. He's, he says male and female are the image of God and you're supposed to rule, and which means we must s- supposed to be do it. We means we're supposed to do it together. Yeah. Yeah. And and do you think that the idea of men and women co-ruling like this would have been surprising to an ancient audience? Or how do you how do you see that sort of in its ancient world? Yeah, I imagine it would have been. Um, in many ways, we have, of course, examples of good partnership between men and women um, in the Old Testament, but it's not the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's like most societies in human history, patriarchal and uh, one in which not just women are are devalued, but most men are devalued as well, while certain men grab all the power for themselves. And so there's just lots of hierarchy that we witness in the biblical story. And I think if we read all those through the lens of Genesis 1 and 2, we find that's not how it's supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. On the hum- um, humbling aspects of the image, I, I, I've also wondered about the idea that the realms over which humans are given dominion are the birds of the sky, fish of the sea, and the beasts of the field, which are a little hard to manage. And <laughs> they are. And so, I mean, especially in an ancient world where you didn't have technology like we have now, um, but the idea that you could rule over birds of the skies and all the fish and beasts in the sea, like at, at one level, it's impossible. So I, th- I think yeah, there's a humility to that vocation uh, as as well. And not to mention, as as one of my professors pointed out, like, Genesis 2 goes on to remind us we're made from the dirt. So unless you get too yes. <laughs> too high and exalted. We ha- exactly. We have this essential connectedness with the created world, and yet we're exalted as God's image. Yeah. There's one piece of that ruling over creation that I find striking in chapter 1. Uh, verse 29 says, Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and the birds of the sky and the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And what it seems like is happening there is God is is letting us know that part of our rulership needs to be 
a, be a benevolent intention toward created beings that makes sure that everyone has access to the food they need. Because the food sources for humans and the food sources for animals are shared. And so we need to learn how to share. That's a good point. So the ruling over the earth is not, I, I'm in charge, so I can do whatever I want and I can take whatever I want for myself. But it's actually a, a responsibility of stewardship so that every living thing has what they need. Yeah, that's great. Um, I hadn't thought about that connection before. So, yeah, because if it had stopped at saying, I give every green plant to you for food, full stop, without mentioning that it's also for all the animals, you might think, okay, so then our dominion- Build higher fences. <laughs> right. Yeah. Is enacted yeah. by making sure we, and we alone at least, get all of the resources. Yeah. yeah. I think this has implications for how we think about um, protecting animal habitats and, you know, migrating animals are having harder and harder time migrating because of the encroachment of urban sprawl on places that were traditionally animal habitats. So I think we do need to think about that. And I I lived in Canada for a few years, four years in Alberta. And one of the things that we found really fascinating traveling through Banff National Park is there are animal crossings that go over the freeway where like the animal crossing is like a bridge with trees and everything growing on it. So they've tried to make natural habitat, natural ways to give animals access to their whole habitat and not have the building of, of highways disrupt that. And that's expensive to do. But I think it's actually part of our our human responsibility as stewards over creation. So you've got a section in the book on the woman as traditionally translated helper in Genesis 2. And how do you think we should understand that idea? Hmm. Not as the one who comes along with a broom or the one who's uh, making sandwiches, although making sandwiches and sweeping up things up might be something that, that we do now and then. Um, I think the word the word helper in English is misleading because it's a very strong word in Hebrew. The word azer in Genesis 2.18, that same word occurs in, either in its noun form or verb form around a hundred times in the Old Testament. And half of those times it's referring to God as Israel's azer. And the other half of the time it's referring to military allies. If you're in battle and you're needing help, you need an azer. So it seems very strange. It, it's striking to me that there's not a single time anywhere in the Hebrew Bible where the word azer is used to describe what a servant does for a master or what an employee does for an employer. It's a, it's, a, it's a strong word that I think would be better translated ally. And it, God recognizes that the job that he's given Adam to do is too big for one man to do by himself, which is why it's not good that he's alone. So God creates someone who is both like and unlike him. They're both human. They're both God's image. But they have different, uh, they have different embodiment, and their differences is, are what bring them together. And that complementarity enables them to collaborate and accomplish work together that they could not accomplish either one by themselves. Yeah, I like the I like the term ally for for translating that, and that also fits with the with this when the woman is brought to the man, he doesn't say, "Oh, great, a, a worker for me." You know, he <laughs> yes, says, right? bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Like what he highlights is the right. the parity 
between them. He's already met the donkeys yeah. and the horses <laughs> and the dogs. If what he needed was, uh, you know, somebody to curl up next to him by the fire or somebody to haul his loads across the field, he's already had those options. This is somebody who is equally the image of God and can help him carry out the very important task of stewardship. So you've you you tease out in the book some of the implications of image status for environmentalism, gender, disability, and race. Um, what are uh, you know? We've talked a little bit about ecological implications and gender. Um, what would you say this has to say to um, race relations and and some of those dynamics uh, as you've looked at this? Because uh, I can imagine, and I just want to preface it. I could imagine a certain reading that says we're all made in the image of God. Therefore, we're all kind of just the same. And and so does it lead to a sort of sameness theology or how, how do you, where do you take the implications of that on the question of the discussion of race? Yeah, I would say, first of all, everyone of any race and any ethnic background is the image of God, full stop. So the all of the implications about human vocation and stewardship and the observation we already made that humans are never told to rule over each other, those all apply to cross-racial relations that we are not told to rule over each other. So the, the history of the transatlantic slave trade and human trafficking here, there, and everywhere um, is just from the, from the get-go not something that fits in God's vision for the world that he made. The ex- exploitation of human labor was never part of God's plan. So so there's that. But it is true that it's not just everyone's the same and our cultural diversity doesn't matter. And so one of the things I try to bring out in the book is the beauty of diversity and God's intention that Adam and Eve fill the earth and spread out. The Tower of Babel represents an opposite impulse to band together and defend ourselves and try to get God to legitimate our empire. I'm suspicious personally of the idea that there was only one language being spoken because it comes right on the heels of chapter 10, the table of nations, where it says multiple times that they spoke multiple languages. So you could either read those as being dischronological. The Tower of Babel happened sometime in the middle of chapter 10, which is possible, Or you can read it suspiciously and say, hmm, somebody is trying to stamp out diversity and forcing everyone to speak the same language. And God doesn't like this idea because his plan is for us to be culturally diverse and to have diverse languages and to spread out so that we live everywhere, not to not to concentrate in one empire. And so I think that God is actually blessing them when he scatters them, that it's not a curse that they speak different languages, but it's a putting God's plan back on track again for there to be a multiplicity of cultures. And we see that then in Acts chapter 2 when the early church is gathered to worship and the Spirit falls and they're able to speak the Word of God in all these different languages, there's not a pressing into uniformity saying, all you people from other languages, just stop here a minute and learn Hebrew and then we can talk to you or learn Greek or whatever. The word of God is going out in those languages. It's not stamping out diversity. It's actually enhancing it. And the the diversity is unified around the worship of the risen Savior. Yeah, that's an interesting point about uh, Acts 2, because um, you can imagine a different kind of scenario 
where everyone from throughout the Roman Empire, the Greek-speaking Roman Empire, came together. They all knew Greek, so it was quite handy. And they could, and then, you know, the fullness of time was because they all spoke Greek, and therefore that could go out. But it's an opposite sort of Alexander, the great impulse. Yes, it is. It is. And I, of course, love Peter's sermon on that date where he talks about there's only one name under heaven by which we must be saved. And he talked about Jesus, but he's quoting from the Old Testament where the one name by which we must be saved is Yahweh. So there's all kinds of Christological implications to his sermon that um, are possible precisely because he's preaching in a language other than the language that of the Old Testament scriptures. So, Yeah. Um, so we're going to do a speed round. and Oh, fun. Everyone always loves this. I'm not very good at these, Matt. You know that. <laughs> well, you know, today's your day. I, I can feel it. All right. How do you solve a problem like Maria? I told you last time that you don't. She's not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder if you changed your view on that. No, I still don't think she's a problem. She's She brings wonderful diversity to the Abbey. Yeah, you know, you, you don't think that she needs sort of bringing into line you know maybe she hasn't found her right spot yet <laughs> when she's in the abbey but yeah. what do you call an angry carrot um an angry carrot a red root that's good that's a good guess a steamed veggie oh, a steamed um, veggie. <laughs> uh, speaking of carrots uh so would you rather eat nothing but well it's not it starts with a C. Roasted crickets for a week. Oh. You know, they have them like where you can um, buy crickets, sort of like potato chips. Sure. Okay, so you have nothing but roasted crickets for a week or raw oysters for a month. Oh, my goodness. Pick one of those two diets. I guess I'll I'll go with the roasted crickets. Okay. Um, what's one idea in biblical studies that needs more attention? Uh, I didn't <laughs> expect that, did you? <laughs> The, the idea in biblical studies that needs more attention is the communal dimensions of scripture and how the Bible is not written for individuals to self-actualize or to discover, you know, some higher plane of existence, but that the Bible is calling us as a community of faith to come together and collaborate and be part of something together. Which reminds me, and I know we're going to take a pause from the speed round for a second. You you have a third book in this series I do. coming out. So <laughs> so you had uh, Bearing God's Name, Being God's Image. And what's the third one that you're working on called? Beco- Becoming God's Family, Why the Church Still Matters. Okay. So that's a, was that, that could be a teaser for that. That's the teaser. There we go. Okay. Um, so keep your ears open for that, everyone who's listening. Okay. Um, would you rather... Uh, a pet rat or a Rottweiler? Oh, for sure a rat, because I could keep it in a cage. <laughs> I actually saw a rat yesterday on my walk home. You'd be amazed at how much wildlife there is in Los Angeles County. Oh. I see coyotes, raccoons, uh, ibises, and ducks, and rats just on my walk to and from work. Wow. See, you said you're not good at the speed round. My next question was, how, what's one thing about Southern California that surprised you? Wow. See? So I'm a prophet. Yeah. Um, So you've answered that. On a scale of one to 10, how good are you at air hockey? Oh, like like air hockey? Like like youth group air hockey. Yeah. On a scale of one to 10, I would give that like an eight because I grew up with an air hockey table in my basement. No way. 
So I've actually played it quite a lot. Well, maybe I'm prophetic. Okay. Um, <laughs> you have to read one of the following authors for a year. So tell me which one and why. Okay. Um, Jordan Peterson, um, Matthew Henry, or the third one is to reread uh, to read all of my first year undergrad Bible papers nonstop. <laughs> So whatever volume you read now, oh. you have to read that much of my first year undergrad um, Bible papers. This is this is hard, Matt. Um, okay, I think all of three of them would have their own sort of appeal and disappeal. Um, undergraduate papers are hard, but it would be interesting to see kind of where were the seeds of your future thoughts, future work. Like how were those? Yeah, you know, probably not present at all. <laughs> you don't think so? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, Matthew Henry would be interesting because that's one that I precisely prohibit my students from using on their papers uh, yeah. because it's oh. in the public domain and it's so easy for them to just Google it. I want them to go in the library and find good commentaries. But if I was forced to read it for a year, I bet I would find some treasures and it might change my prejudice. And Jordan Peterson, reading Jordan Peterson would probably also help me connect with my students yeah, in a way so that popular. like hearing what they're hearing or knowing what they're thinking about and being able to articulate what I want to say in in words that would resonate. Wow. You see the you see the best in everyone. <laughs> do I do I actually want to do all of these? No. I'd rather spend a year reading NT Wright or or Justo Gonzalez. That yeah, would the, be a fun That's year. not an option here. Okay. Okay. Wow. Um, all right. Back to the sort of other questions I wanted to ask you about your book. Um, you you tell the story of Colton, a neighbor of yours, when you were living in Alberta, uh, and actually dedicate the book to him. So I'm just wondering if you could talk about him a little bit and what he taught you. And I want to know how his book's coming along. <laughs> um, he he is now he okay. So Colton was our our next door neighbor in Alberta on our cul-de-sac, and he appeared on page 38 of my first book as a, in a fictional illustration about doing chores. Uh, and and I was trying to say God is not like a neighbor that's telling the neighbor kids to do chores. Like that's not what the law is. It's like family household code kind of thing. Anyway, so it's just fictional, but Colton was very thrilled to have his name in print. And he asked if I would write about him in my second book. And I was already planning to because this idea of uh, who qualifies to be God's image I think it's so important for us to recognize that every human being is the image of God and to decouple that from any particular human capacity. If you attach the image of God to human rationality, then you end up with a sliding scale of student, of humans who are more rational than others. And you end up with sort of an IQ basis for the image of God instead of a God-given dignity. And so Colton is, when, when I was writing the book, he was 18 years old, and he would greet me in the cul-de-sac as I was coming home every day from work. So I'd drive into the cul-de-sac, and he would be standing out there ready to greet me, and I would roll down my window, and I'd say, hi, Colton, and he'd go, do you have any symptoms? I'd say, no, I don't have any symptoms today. I, I'm good to go. And he goes, can I see your COVID card? And I would pull out my imaginary COVID card. I had a real one for a while that he made for me, but then I lost it. So he he was fine with an imaginary one. And he would imaginary scan it and write down on his clipboard that I was clear of COVID. And then he'd say, did you write about me in your book yet? 
And I'd say, not yet, Colton. And then he'd say, what you having for dinner? And I'd say, I don't know, Colton, but you could probably tell me. And then he would tell me what I'm having for dinner because because I don't know if it was inspired by my first book or what, but he started helping my husband with chores all the time. Oh, wow. (laughs) So So he'd go over to our house after school and help my husband with chores. And by helping, I mean he would keep him company. Yeah. And watch what was happening. So Colton is just like a great big teddy bear, the neighborhood mascot you know, so kind to everyone. He would usually get the whole cul-de-sac shoveled of snow before the snow plow for our town would make it to our end of town because he would be concerned they're not doing their job. So he would just clear all the snow for us. Anyway, delightful human being. And um, and I'm convinced that Colton and every other intellectually disabled person out there is fully the image of God and that they have full human dignity and should be treated that way. Yeah, that's um, that's such a beautiful story and image. And and, and he said he's working on a book too, right? Yeah, he was he was writing a book when we left called "Being Colton's Image," (laughs) (laughs) or be or no no bearing Colton's name. It was it was bearing Colton's name, and it was a story all about how we were nice neighbors. Oh, that's great. (laughs) (laughs) And so my husband now now we live in Southern California, and my husband actually talks to Colton probably two or three times a week. They video chat, and so the. My husband will just put the put the phone on the kitchen counter and talk to Colton while he's making dinner or whatever, like he used to, like they used to do in person. You have uh, different sections on the book. Uh, we as we've always talked, uh, we, as we as we've discussed already about uh, gender relations, and I wanted to just ask you about the the fact that Jesus is male. Uh, is do you think that's theologically meaningful that he's male, and how? How should we understand that aspect of the incarnation? I think that Jesus is male because he is the new Adam. And since Adam was made first, there's a sort of correspondence with Jesus uh, being the new Adam. But I do think it's significant that God chose, when he chose to send us a male savior, he didn't just appear out of nowhere, but he came through the body of a woman so we have Mary's full participation and surrender to God's will, uh, her her agency in the process. It doesn't he, God doesn't force this on her, but she she says, "May it be to me as you have said." So Mary's willing participation in bearing Christ means that although we have a male Savior, he also represents all humanity because he came through a woman. So there's a participation of women as well. I'm I'm relying here on the work of Amy. Peeler, uh, her book Women and the Gender of God is such a beautiful exploration of this topic in a in a both orthodox and hospitable way. She engages with a lot of feminist scholarship that has really struggled with the idea of Jesus as male and how can a male savior save women. And I feel like she's done a really beautiful job of showing how the witness of scripture includes women in God's saving event. Well, um, one more question I want to ask about how the Imago Dei relates to how you understand the gospel um, and even gospel proclamation. Uh, how would you how would you uh, characterize that dynamic? Yeah. So the very the the very last two pages of the book are my attempt to re-express the gospel as I wish we would do it instead of just we're asking Jesus into our hearts so we can go to heaven when we die, treating our bodies like a kind of husk to be discarded. 
Um, I think that when we share the gospel, we need to tell more of the story. I think we've chopped off the beginning and we've chopped off the end. And yes, heaven is a piece of the story that will involve us. And, and I do believe in blessed consciousness. And so after we die, our spirits will be reunited with Christ while we await his coming. And so I believe that, but I think that's only the, the middle slice of the story. And the gospel story is much bigger than that because it involves God's good intentions for this created world and his creation of us Im- embodied to represent his presence on earth. And it includes God's intentions to restore this earth and to appoint us again in the same position in our resurrected bodies as caretakers of creation, which is a very physical job to do. And I think that the gospel, when we tell it that way, it gives people not just fire insurance, but it gives them a reason for living. Because the work that we do now in relation to this physical planet actually matters for eternity. We're contributing to something that has mattered and will continue to matter in God's great design for things. And and I, th- I think that we've done people a disservice by talking about, about salvation in very spiritual and disembodied ways, because then people don't know, like, why does my life matter? I'm just sort of waiting, like the clock is ticking until I can finally get rid of this flesh and be in the presence of God. And I think that's a mistake because God invites us to do all sorts of good work and to participate in his rule. Well, Carmen, thank you so much for coming on Onscript to talk about your book, Being God's Image, Why Creation Still Matters. And we look forward to the third book in this series as well as that's set to be released when? Oh dear. Um, I think 2026 fall. Like I'm, I'm going to start writing it in January is my hope. So it'll, it'll be a couple of years. You may, maybe uh, listeners can, you know, just shoot you ideas as they come come to mind. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Sounds All right. Good. Well, thanks so much. I'm, I'm, I'm open to lots of ideas. Send me your ideas. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Carmen. All right. Thanks for having me, Matt. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.